If you are new here, we are in the middle of a long 66-week sermon series called The Thread, where we are tracing uh, the story of God all the way through the, the biblical scriptures, that it's an overarching story. And so we are actually preaching uh, a chapter or two from each book of the Bible, and today you find yourself in Zephaniah. So we are in for a treat, right? You're like, I woke up this morning thinking, I want to talk about Zephaniah. So uh, next week, we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk uh, on Thanksgiving weekend. It's incredibly appropriate as we look at the song in the last part of chapter three of Habakkuk. And then we're going to take just a brief break during the season of Advent where we'll have a series called The People of the Incarnation, how Jesus is coming to this world, God coming into this world, actually shapes and forms us as a people. Um, And then uh, at New Year, we'll dive back into the Thread Sermon Series. So uh, next week, also, I'm going to be making an announcement on what our Advent Conspiracy Project is for the year, so I know a lot of you got an overview of Zephaniah. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have to dive into your word God, we want to be, as a people, shaped and formed by your word. And so would you speak to us today? Holy Spirit, would you speak through me or or would you speak in spite of me if you need to? But God, would you reveal your heart for your people this morning in in the pages of Zephaniah? So Holy Spirit, we invite you and we're eager to to listen to have our minds and our hearts and our hearts and our lives shaped by you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Zephaniah was written by the prophet Zephaniah sometime between 635 and 625 BC. Zephaniah writes about the judgment coming to Judah, as well as their neighboring countries. King Josiah had made great efforts to reform Judah's social and spiritual practices, but the nation was set in their sinful patterns. For years, the prophet Zephaniah warned that the Lord would send a powerful army to sweep through their lands and destroy Jerusalem on account of their sins. But God's judgment would not be limited to Judah. Zephaniah lists the surrounding nations and counts them all as guilty. Alongside this bleak message, Zephaniah calls for the people to seek the Lord and be spared by his mercy. This faithful remnant would one day be counted righteous by their faith and ultimately see the fulfillment of God's promises. Best day ever! How many of you guys have ever seen the movie Tangled? The story of Rapunzel? All the dads in the room with young daughters are like, oh yeah, 38 times I have seen it. Probably the iconic scene when I think about that particular movie is that the day Rapunzel finally leaves the tower, what she's been dreaming about every day of her life, you see these shots where she is on top of the world and she screams, best day ever! And then immediately afterwards, she's rolling in the, in the grass, worst day ever! And it goes back and forth and back and forth. Dads, if you have daughters a certain age, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Not only because you've seen this movie, but because in some part you have lived it too. The book of Zephaniah in a nutshell is best day ever, worst day ever. You see, the main theme of Zephaniah is the coming day of the Lord. And depending on what side of God's judgment you fall, either it is the best or the worst day. 
What hits you when you read through the prophet Zephaniah is the vivid language used. There's no halfway in Zephaniah. It's all in or all out. The judgment of God is portrayed in striking language. The wrath of God is terrible to behold. And then on the flip side, when God's love and mercy and heart for his people is described, it is equally striking in its intimacy, its power, and its beauty. The day of the Lord truly is the best and the worst day ever, depending on what side of it you are on. Chapter 3 of Zephaniah, what we'll look at this morning together, is a microcosm of the whole book. It begins in the first eight verses with God's judgment and his warning, but ends with a declaration of his love for his people that moves us to tears. If you remember, Zephaniah is a contemporary of King Josiah. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that he is the great-great-grandson himself of King Hezekiah meaning he is of the house of David, and he is distant, distantly related. He's cousins of one degree of separation or another with King Josiah. And during Josiah's reign, if you remember, there was a great spiritual revival that happened in the land. Josiah was a seven-year-old king, and, and during his time, he, he moved to, to renovate the temple, to fix it up because it had gotten into disrepair and had fallen apart. And as they are renovating the temple, as they are taking out all of the foreign idols from the temple of God, they rediscover the law of God, the Torah. Meaning, they had lost it. They lost God's law. They lost God's word. And as they began to read it, they are utterly broken, realizing that we are not doing what God has called us to do as his covenant people. And so Zephaniah, in that particular time, comes along and announces, even though there is this beautiful revival going on, it's a little too little, a little too late. So let's read about the judgment that's about to fall in Zephaniah chapter 3. The first five verses here. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests are profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. God's judgment begins not with the nations that have rebelled against God, but actually with the city of Jerusalem herself. We're told that she doesn't listen to God. She hears but doesn't listen and Jerusalem is called or titled the oppressing city, not the oppressed city that we might come to expect with the, with the rising nations, Assyria and Babylon, but rather the city that oppresses its own. And then Zephaniah ticks through the list of the leaders. Her officials, those in the government, are like roaring lions. Her judges, like ravening wolves. Her prophets are fickle and treacherous men. Her priests, those who minister in the temple and the sanctuary, profane what is holy and do violence to the law. 
So here we have the people of God's leaders who have failed them in every conceivable way. But verse 5, in stark contrast to that, paints a picture of God who does justice every day and is never unjust. And so God's righteous judgment is going to fall, and it's going to fall on Jerusalem, on God's people. This is exactly what's described in such vivid poetic language in chapter 1. It's, it's really stark and, and, and striking if you read it. But then in verses 6 to 8, the, the scope of God's judgment turns from his people in Jerusalem to now the surrounding nations. That they too are not innocent, but stand rightly condemned under God's judgment. Let's read verses 6 to 8. I have cut off the nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste to their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. Verse 8 stands as an apt summary for the whole beginning of the book. God will judge Jerusalem. God will judge all of the nations of the earth. The day of the Lord will be terrible in its arrival. And we kind of expect this, right? It's been the theme of the book up until this point. And so it's not outside the realm of possibility to think, okay, the end. God's judgment on the day of the Lord comes and wipes everyone out as he pours his indignation on everybody. But that's not the end. Praise God, that's not the end. In verse 9, everything turns. And God no longer speaks words of judgment and condemnation, but rather restoration and hope. A future for the nations and for his own people that they could barely even hope for. Here's the structure of Zephaniah 3. It, it forms a, a Hebrew chiasm, so to speak, where the, first, the, the beginning and the end sections go together and the middle sections go together. So verses 1 to 5, we see God's judgment on Jerusalem. Verses 6 to 8, God's judgment on the nations. Verses 9 to 13, God's restoration of the nations. And then verses 14 to 20, God's love for his people. Look at the promise of restoration that we find in verses 9 to 13. It reads, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my, my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Cush was in the very southern part of Egypt. It was far away. They are being gathered to, to Jerusalem. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds with which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies 
nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. What a beautiful picture we see painted here. The nations who up until this point have been a picture of rebellion and violence will now call on the name of the Lord. They will serve the Lord and have their speech changed to pure speech. From far away, people will come and bring sacrifices and offerings to the Lord in Jerusalem, his holy city. On that day, we're told that God will remove two things from them, your shame and your haughty and proud ones. And what will be left is a people that are characterized by humility and by justice and by honesty, speaking no lies or deceit. We're told at the end that they will be safe and at peace because they find refuge in the name of the Lord. Now, of course, in the New Testament, we see this reality begin to come to pass in part in Jesus in his ministry. He becomes, for the people of God, their peace, their refuge, their safety. And this is not just for the Jewish people who have been waiting for a Messiah to come and deliver and save them, but he is the Savior and is the peace of all of the nations of the earth as they are gathered to him. Isn't it amazing to think also that in Jesus our pride and our shame are removed? Pride and shame, two things that we don't often think go together because they are at different ends of the spectrum. Shame being a deep feeling of unworthiness or worthlessness. Pride is the delusion over our own worthiness as if God owes us something. But as we'll see, In the gospel, both pride and shame are utterly destroyed by God's grace. Let me show you how the gospel addresses both haughtiness and pride and also shame and feelings of unworthiness. See, pride, we'll start there. The only ones who can receive the grace that that comes in Jesus Christ are those who come to grips with their own failure, their own spiritual poverty, their own sense of unworthiness before God. In that moment, for those people, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus on their behalf forces us to acknowledge that God doesn't owe us anything good. In fact, we've earned nothing but his judgment and his ire. Therefore, those who come to God on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, his life, death, and resurrection, must first humble themselves and admit their spiritual poverty. Admit their need. And that becomes the prerequisite to receiving the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why God's people ought always to be characterized by humility. See, there should never be any swagger in our midst. Because we of all people ought to have an innate sense of just how needy we are. And God welcomes us anyway. See, the gospel crushes our pride down to the very foundations. You want to be different in this world? Pursue humility. Humility is unbelievably attractive. In a look-at-me, look-at-me kind of world where everyone is told, you need to promote yourself. You need to build your brand. You need to let everyone know just how extraordinary you are. Isn't it refreshing to interact with someone who just doesn't do that? Who just quietly does excellent work? 
who cares for others without having to post every minute of their life online, whose life isn't a performance, it's just their life. It's who they are. See, God's people are characterized by humility, honesty, justice, in verses 12 and 13. On the flip side, the gospel also demolishes shame. Verse 11 says, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. See, if pride plagues half of the population, then shame plagues the other half. Or maybe we're all just plagued by both and we pinball between the two of them. If pride deludes us into thinking that God owes us something, then shame causes us to believe that we are worthless, that we are unworthy of anything good that might happen. Let me, let me say it as clearly as I can. God doesn't owe you, but he does love you. God doesn't owe you, but he does love you more than you can even imagine. See, the greatest way to combat shame and feelings of worthlessness is to remember what God willingly sacrificed for you, his one and only son. He doesn't do this to merely tolerate you. It's because he loves you. How much? We'll see in verses 14 through the end. There are a few spots in the Bible where God's heart of love toward his people are made as plainly as they are here. So listen closely as I read verses 14 to 17. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now the only command or imperative that we find in all of chapter 3 is found in verse 14. Where God tells his people to do something. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. Oh, Jerusalem, why does he tell us to sing loudly, to shout, and to rejoice, and to exult? Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against us. He has cleared away our enemies, and that is cause for rejoicing, for singing, for shouting, for praise. In that day, verses 15 and 16, we are told that we will no longer live in fear of any kind. But then the heart of God is revealed to us in verse 17 in a way that is utterly astounding. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. When we come to a verse like this, especially one in a rather obscure book in the Old Testament, Zephaniah, we just got to slow down. And take it in, don't we? 
Yes, God's wrath and anger burn hot against sin and rebellion, but it's because he loves us so much. He hates to see his people hurt, crushed, destroyed. Look at the five truths that we see in this verse. God is with us. God is mighty to save. God rejoices over you and is glad to do it. God will quiet us with his love. God sings over us. Best day ever. God is with you. We're told the Lord your God is in your midst. This means that you and I are never, let me say that again, never alone. No matter how you feel today, God is with you. He is near to his people. Contrary to how you might feel, God has not abandoned you. And some of you need to hear that this morning. In fact, I would bet all of us need to hear that. Say with me, God has not abandoned me. Turn to your neighbor and say, God has not abandoned you. That went way better than I thought it would. Good job, northern Minnesota. God has not abandoned you. He has not abandoned me. He is with us. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. There are going to be days, brothers and sisters, when you feel completely and utterly alone. You're not. And you never are. The Lord is with you. Second, God is mighty to save. As his people were staring down the certainty of their judgment, the inevitable nation of Babylon was rising and would eventually crush them. God assures them in that moment of his ability and his might to save, and that one day he will. I don't know what you guys are all facing today, but I can tell you with absolute certainty God is not stressed out one bit by what you're facing. He has not broken a sweat in any of your problems. God is mighty to save, and he will. Third, and this one's amazing, God rejoices over you, and he's glad to do it. He will rejoice over you with gladness. There's nothing really like a father's pride in his children. When he sees his kids excelling at something, it's hard to even explain, but when you see your kids succeed, especially if they've had to face some adversity, you're just so proud of them. Like you, just, you just burst with a sense of, I'm so proud of you. I could tell you story after story about my kids. And the amount of pride I feel when they succeed for everyone else to see on the athletic field, with their report cards, at their band or choir concerts, being recognized by their peers as leaders, but also the pride that bursts when I see them when no one else is looking. I'm so proud of my kids. And I hope they feel that every single day. But my pride as a father is just a smidgen of how our heavenly father feels toward us. He rejoices over us, and no one forces him to do it. It just springs forth from him. Some of you, 
listening maybe have never been rejoiced in by your earthly father or your earthly mother. You never felt a moment where you're like, they're proud of me. If that's you, let me show you this morning how God relates to his son and how in Christ he relates to you. During Jesus of Nazareth's earthly ministry, there are two moments where God speaks audibly to him for everybody else to hear. At the very beginning of his ministry, when he is baptized by John, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, and we hear the audible voice of God say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. After Jesus has been obscurely, faithfully serving him, and nobody knows about it for over 30 years in Podunk, Nazareth. When he begins his ministry, the father says, you are my loved son, and I am pleased with you, and I am proud of you. That's what it means. Now it's recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke so that we wouldn't miss it, so that we would know who he is, but also because Jesus needed to hear it. The second time is at the Mount of Transfiguration, that moment where God pulls back the cloak of Jesus' humanity that was cloaking his glory. And Peter, James, and John get to see him as he actually is. And in that moment, he says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see, The Mount of Transfiguration is kind of the turning point toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry where he turns his face toward Jerusalem and he begins to walk there, the place where he will lay down his life as a sacrifice for sins. Now these words were given so that we would all know who we're dealing with when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the Son of God. But these words were also given to Jesus at two key turning points in his life. Why? To reassure him how the father felt toward him. Son, I love you, he says. I have seen your faithful life of obscurity, and I approve. Son, I'm proud of you. Son, I have observed your ministry, and now as you head to the cross to bear the sins of many, know this, I love you, and I am proud of you. Oh, now by the way, you all should listen to him too. Now, if the eternal Son of God needs to hear these things from his Father, I'm guessing we do too. But the good news for every single person here listening right now who has put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether your earthly father affirmed you like this or not, if you are in Christ, your heavenly Father does. He sees you. And he calls you his beloved son. And he tells you he's proud of you. Some of you guys are like, well, Pastor Kyle, those words are being said to Jesus, not me. Well, you're right. That's good. Way to read the Bible well. But if you're a Christian and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, that means that you are now in Christ. United to him by faith. And what that means is that everything that Jesus has earned or accomplished through his life is now yours by faith in him. That is amazing. That is unbelievable. That's good news. That's the gospel. We're not even done yet. That's only three of them. So God is with us. 
God is mighty to save. God rejoices over you with gladness. Two more. God will quiet us with his love. What does it mean that God quiets us by his love? Does God tell us to shut up? Sick of hearing from us? No. He will quiet us. It is the stillness, the quiet of safety and security, enjoying love with one another. When lovers are reunited after a long time, when parents and children are restored after a prolonged separation, perhaps against all odds, there are times for joyous hugs and loud songs and exultant shouts. But then there's also time for those moments of quiet awe, resting in each other's arms, experiencing the intimacy of another human being and just being together. We are told that God will quiet us with his love. Finally, lastly, and perhaps most vivid of all, God sings over us. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Now, I got this belief that every one of us secretly wants a love song written for us. Now, many people don't have the significant other that has those giftings in order to do it, but deep down, we all think, that would be pretty cool if someone did that for me. Here, we have Yahweh, Israel's God, pictured as singing over them, exulting over them, not with a quiet little song or a quiet little ballad, but with loud singing. Now, some of you guys are picturing this moment and thinking, that sounds like a nightmare. Someone is breaking out in song publicly and taking an intimate moment and making it public. But that's not actually what's going on here. Yes, it is an intimate moment made public. But remember, there is no embarrassment or shame. This is the purest kind of love and delight that we could experience. The father is declaring his heart for his children. The lover is singing a song to his beloved And the crazy part about all of it is that it's for you. It's for me. And he's singing it specifically to you and to me. You're not observing God doing this to somebody else, but rather he is singing over you if you were his child. Now, if the first four pictures didn't land in your heart about how God feels for his people, let the vivid imagery of this, God exulting over you with loud song, captivate your imagination. Now, this chapter concludes with a picture of further restoration in verses 18 to 20. We read, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Those who mourn will come to the party. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Those who are currently mourning and broken, are invited to the party free from the griefs of life. Those who are ashamed no longer suffer shame and reproach. In fact, their shame will be turned into praise and renown, we read. 
The outcast is welcome in. Those who are oppressed see their oppressors dealt with. The lame will be healed or saved. The peoples will be gathered from the earth and the fortunes shall be restored. This is the kingdom that God brings. These are the characteristics of Jesus' ministry, are they not? Because when Jesus comes, all of the effects of the curse, all of the ways in which sin has put a stranglehold on this world and its people will begin to be reversed. Is that not what we sing every Christmas when we belt out joy to the world? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow in just an itty-bitty little space. No. Far as the curse is found. When Jesus arrives on the scene, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the mute speak, and good news is preached to the poor. What is Jesus doing? He is reversing the effects of sin in all of their areas. He is showing not only that he has God's power, but how he will use God's power redemptively to fight against the decay of this world, the curse of this world, and bring about hope, redemption, and restoration. Jesus comes, and his earthly ministry gives us a foretaste of this great promise. A true taste, but just the appetizer, the great feast or banquet is yet to come. And then God's people, having tasted and seen that he is good, get hungrier and hungrier for the best day ever. So, brothers and sisters, what do we do with this? How does Zephaniah 3 change our lives or at least change how we think about our lives? Really, it comes down to this. Believe what you say you believe. Three things. Let God love you. Let God remove your shame. And let God crush your pride. First, let God love you. Pastor Dean was sharing about his ministry at Northwestern College. He served, he's our Chester Park campus pastor. And he served for about 20 years on a college campus, Northwestern College, down in the cities. And during that time, he would counsel a lot with college students that were struggling in their faith, most of them growing up in the church. And he would ask them this question, do you think that God loves you? And inevitably, they would all say, well, of course he does. I've learned that from a young age. God loves me. That's what he has to do. And then he would follow it up with this question, do you think God likes you? And he said, more often than not, they would break down in tears because in their heart of hearts, they believe, well, yeah, God has to love me, but he doesn't like me. He simply tolerates me. Guys, God doesn't do all that he does in order to redeem and save us because he wants to eternally tolerate us holding his nose so that the stench of our lives doesn't get into his breathing. No, he does what he does because he loves us. And he likes us. He made us in his image. He designed us uniquely. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God didn't make an accident. Sure, that's been tainted and corrupted by the curse and by sin. But God made you. He likes you. He loves you. Do you believe that? See, maybe the biggest 
application point you can have this week is to actually believe that God loves you and likes you and live like it's true. Because here's the thing. If God likes you, who are you to argue? He wins. Just try to get into an argument with him. If God likes you and he loves you, doesn't matter what you think of yourself. Why don't you believe a different story? The story of what he tells you you are worth. That goes right into let God remove your shame. He promises to do so. So let him cover your shame. See, shame feels, feeds off feelings of worthlessness. But brother, sister, you are not worthless. Look at what God willingly parted with for you. The one thing that he was most reticent to lose, his one and only son, he lost willingly for you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32. When the crazy accusations come, when the soul-crushing self-talk begins anew, Choose to believe what God says about you rather than what feels true in any given moment. Fight to believe the good news of the gospel in that moment. And God says, I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Finally, let God crush your pride. At this point, we shouldn't struggle with pride, should we? But we do. We forget that we are debtors to God's grace and that because of this, we have relinquished any sense of the word earned or owed. Shouldn't even be part of our vocabulary. We do not get what we deserve and that is a really good thing. We do not get what we are owed. Praise be to God. So then what should mark our life? As God's people, we ought to be marked by humility, honesty, and justice. Humility, realizing I have no rights that are owed to me, only what is graciously given. Honesty. See, Christians of all people can face the worst parts about ourselves knowing that God has overcome our deep shame, our sin, our failure, and given us an entirely new identity. And justice. Because we now want to live in the future kingdom reality as much as we possibly can in the here and now. And so until we get there, we are committed to reflecting the values of our Father. See, in light of this, we are called to be the people described living in the renewed land, living out humility, justice, and honesty in order to reflect and take on the character of our Father as we give the world a glimpse of what is to come. Let's pray. God, thank you for your heart revealed to us in Zephaniah. God, so often we foolishly think that there's nothing that I can apply from that passage of Scripture. And yet, God, all of your word is breathed out by you and is profitable and useful for teaching, for correcting, for reproving, that we may be trained in righteousness. God, I pray for the person right now who thinks too highly of themselves. They think that if they turn to you, God, you get a good deal. Would you humble them today and reveal to them your magnificent grace?
God, for the person who is bound up in shame and feelings of worthlessness, would you explode in their heart even as I pray the willingness of your heart to buy them back? God, would we latch on to even just one of these vivid images that display your heart toward us? Help us as your people to believe what we believe. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.